0: I want to invite you to turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. One of our convictions is that the gospel is not just simply a a matter of doctrine, doctrines that we believe. The gospel is, it is a dynamic power that changes lives. It gets things done in us. It produces things, and specifically it produces things like gratitude and humility, and generosity, and great joy, and great uh, peace and patience in times of suffering, and it produces spiritual community. It works. It works. And in Daniel chapter 4, we see the gospel working and getting things done. I'm just going to begin by reading the first three verses of Daniel chapter 4. And uh, if you are able, and as an expression of our high regard for God's word, would you stand with me and follow along? Just these first three verses. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs. How mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion endures From generation to generation. This is God's word. Let's pray together. What a wonderful declaration. What a wonderful proclamation. What a wonderful blessing to communicate to the world. Lord, we we would ask that 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 blessing would fall fresh on us today, that peace would be multiplied among us, in us, through us. Pray, Lord, that you would do what flesh and blood cannot do, and that is open the eyes of our hearts in such a way that we behold you as you have revealed yourself to be in your word, we pray that um, our eyes would see through our ears and that we would hear your voice and we would hear truth about you and it would transform us and it would work and get things done. Make us different, Lord. Bless this world that we live in today for your name's sake through Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe be seated. Daniel chapter four starts in a, a rather startling way. It is um, we read this and we go, wait a minute, who who's, who is talking? Who is this? Is King Nebuchadnezzar speaking? It's startling. A king who has spent his rule and reign expanding his influence in the world through brutal military force is wishing all peoples, all nations, all languages peace. Multiplied peace. Lots of peace. And this is something we do not expect, and given the idle, constructing, self-exalting Uh, narcissistic patterns we've witnessed in this man, the other thing that is shocking is high praise from his lips to the most high God. But we love stories of redemption and we love hearing testimonies of God's power making people new It engenders hope, it engenders joy when we see and we hear that God is still working miracles, saving the worst sinners, transforming the hardest hearts. And so what we would like to believe is that someone as broken as Nebuchadnezzar can be saved. And yet some of us have known people like Nebuchadnezzar. You have the scar tissue to show for the relationship that that you had with an emotional abuser. A life of walking on eggshells with a raging, shaming parent or a threatening, controlling spouse or some charming yet manipulative, egotistical boss or even a coercive and bullying pastor the world is full of Nebuchadnezzar's and truth be told there is a bit of Nebuchadnezzar in each and every one of us that's because pride which was fundamentally a major issue for Nebuchadnezzar according to God's Word is at the core of all sin John Stott writes Pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. C.J. Mahaney writes, From God's perspective, pride seems to be the most serious sin. According to Scripture, there is no sin more offensive to God than pride. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 5 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart, now let's see, is that is anybody off the hook here? (laughs) Uh, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Why is that? Why, Why does God hate Pride so passionately. Is it not because pride rejects God as God? Pride resists the knowledge of God. Pride pushes back on the authority of God. Pride resists the holiness of God. It blinds us to God and any awareness of God. Pride hardens us against God. Pride is rebellion against God. And pride is expressed any time we refuse to acknowledge our dependence on God. Charles Bridges writes, Pride lifts up one's heart against God and contends for supremacy with Him. So no wonder God opposes pride. Pride contends. It contends against God for supremacy. And because God cannot bear this arrogance, He reveals Himself through His Word as actively opposed to pride. James 4.6 famously says, God opposes the proud. That is present tense, right now, actively, immediately, constantly. God is opposing the proud. Jonathan Edwards called pride, the worst viper that is in the heart, the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ, the most difficult sin to root out and the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. So it's no surprise then, right, that we may find ourselves just a little skeptical of what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar, and it is for that reason, I believe, that the author of Daniel turns the pen over to, Daniel, uh, over to Nebuchadnezzar himself in order to, quote, show the signs and wonders, that is this incredible miracle that... The Most High God has done for me. Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is intended to engender hope in all of us that this worst of all vipers, this greatest disturber of soul peace and sweet communion with Jesus, may, by God's sovereign grace give way to humility. Listen to Nebuchadnezzar's last these are the last recorded words we have of this man in Daniel chapter 4 verse 37. Now I Nebuchadnezzar praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk In pride, He is able to humble, speaking from personal experience. Loved ones, the the gospel is the power of God to produce humility, humility in the lives of God's people. And the purpose of Daniel chapter 4 is not just to show us how the the gospel does that, how it produces humility in the proudest of sinners and the hardest of hearts. God's purpose in Daniel chapter 4 is to to stir us to worship Him because of His ability to produce humility in the proudest of sinners and the hardest of hearts. And God willing, that's what we're going to do at the end of this sermon. We're going to worship God for His works are right, and His ways are just, and He is able, and He does produce humility in His people. So where does God honoring Christ-like humility come from? And the first place that we would begin is recognizing that God so often gets the deepest work done in our lives In the hardest of experiences, the hardest of times, the most broken moments. Just trace it out for yourself. If you think about the high points and the low points of your life, which, which ones? The high points or the low points led to the most significant growth, the most significant spiritual development. And most likely, it was the hard times, the painful times. It was the dark times. And in Nebuchadnezzar's case, his transformation required stripping away everything in once he, everything in which he once gloried. Look at verses four through six. "I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. And prospering in my palace, (laughs) I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's... He's living the dream and he's he's living the good life. He's content. He's prosperous. And you can imagine, you know, people following on Instagram and just kind of, you know, just feeling the the poison of envy, you know, rising from that sidelong glance we thought about a couple weeks ago. Oh man, just look at his life. No problems whatsoever. But we also need to recognize that his ease was an obstacle to his spiritual transformation. How many people consider 2020 to be one of the hardest, saddest, frustrating years of your life? I mean, Certainly there's people who have endured much, much worse. But I think for most people, this is like, ugh, ugh. But it's discomfort, and it is disaster, at least profound personal discomfort, that is very often the necessary situation in which the most important deep shaping effect takes a hold of our souls. When everything is easy, we are seldom serious about spiritual matters, But when your career hopes are dashed, or your marriage relationship is in shreds, or the doctor announces the bad news, or whatever other kind of unplanned for brokenness is cast upon us, we are presented with a transformational window. It's an opportunity, and God is about to assert himself for Nebuchadnezzar's personal transformation and his eternal well-being. And the challenge that God used to initiate his redeeming activity in Nebuchadnezzar's soul was directed at his contentedness. And it came in the form of another unsettling dream. Verses 17, I'm going to read all the way through 18, so stay with me here. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw... In the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. And let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, Amid the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end... That the living may know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, Tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now the good news (laughs) in the dream was that this, this massive tree represented Nebuchadnezzar himself. And I'm sure that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar would have he would have been so, you know, happy to see himself in the role of cosmic tree, you know, the, the epicenter and pivot point of the entire universe. But this tree has a dark side also. According to the vision, Nebuchadnezzar would be brought low. He would not only lose his power and glory, he would lose his humanity. He, he would make his home with the birds and the beasts that, in the metaphor, once found shelter in his branches. In other words, the one who thought of himself in such godlike terms would crawl around like an animal in order to learn to view himself and God in proper perspective. Look at verse 19 following, I guess, through verse 25. Then Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It's you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation. O okay. King, it is a decree. Of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. That you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know. Till you learn, until you own up, until you bow down to the reality that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Now, it's important to register at this point that, you know, this... The fate that's depicted here for Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. It's not not an inevitability. The the purpose of the dream was to provide him with a a warning shot across his bow, as it were. Wake up, man. There was an opportunity for him to repent. Repent. And that's why Daniel pleads with him in verses 26 and 27. As it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. There have been many, many Nebuchadnezzars and worse in the history of the world and there have been many times When things were as desperate or worse than they were then and are today. And the next step has always been the same. Repent. Break off from your sins. Bow down. Turn to God. Ask the Lord for forgiveness. Appeal to Him for acceptance through the perfect life and the sin-atoning death of Jesus. Just think of the promises that God makes. Trust Him. Repent. Promises like Isaiah 66 verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Promises like James four verse six, God gives grace to the humble. Sadly, the warning of the dream went unheeded by Nebuchadnezzar. It, it as often happens, when we read warnings in Scripture, and nothing really happens. And we can so easily mistake these merciful delays in God's judgment as signs that, well, you know, we can just sort of safely (laughs) blow that off. A whole year went by during which Nebuchadnezzar had a whole lot of time to think this through and turn, and he didn't. Verses 28 to 33. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. It's the third time that phrase has been used. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. And it's, it's worth just noting where Nebuchadnezzar's eyes are directed at the beginning of this season of judgment in his life. His focus is where? It's on on himself. It's on his own achievements. It's on putting everybody else in his life in second place. It's on his own glory and majesty. Ian Duguid comments on this passage. He says, "'The eyes of pride are thus always fixed on myself and my performance.'" in a way that leaves no room for looking upwards to God. It's really hard to look up and see and behold the glories of God when we are so fixed on ourselves and the glories and the wonderfulness about, or lack of it. But it's also significant that the end of Nebuchadnezzar's humbling, this, the end of this chapter... Uh, and the return of his sanity comes when he took his eyes off from him, himself and lifted them to heaven in an act of prayer and an expression of dependence. Good verses 34 to the end. At the end of the days, the end of this period of humbling, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned for me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It was um, many years ago now. Um, I remember Lori and I feeling some of the exasperation that comes with raising teenagers, teenage boys. I guess maybe in particular, teenage girls are probably no problem. Um, we had this really good friend who we respected and admired on account of really the good fruit that we observed in the life of, of his teenage son, and uh, so we asked. What did you do? You know, what's the secret sauce here? What would you tell us uh, that you have learned about effectively motivating a young man? Because that, that was the issue, right? How do you get him to do what you want him to do? And uh, to this day, we, we still remind each other about what our friend said. He, he, said, he, he said, I've learned it's not a matter of motivation. It's a matter of revelation. It's not about coercing and leveraging and powering up. It's, they have to see something. They have to behold something. And that kind of takes it out of our hands to a certain degree, other than pointing and pointing and pointing and pointing praying that their eyes or their hearts might be opened. We have found it to be true. Until the eyes of the hearts are open to behold the glories of God's sovereign greatness in Christ, there will be no gospel transformation. You have to see. And only a sovereign God can make us see as we declare it, we proclaim it, we communicate it, seek to live it, and we trust in Him to make the miracle of seeing happen. Spiritual transformation is a matter of divine revelation. And what do the eyes of our hearts need to see that changes everything? Three times in this passage, God tells us. It's the phrase, That the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. When we see that, when we own that, when we bow the knees of our heart to that, everything changes. Loved ones, looking away from oneself and owning up to God's sovereign authority and right to rule and reign is the essence of true humility. John Calvin wrote, It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. It's a a false humility that says, and it's just totally vain to do this, oh, what a worthless wretch I am, you know? Because plainly, when you say, ah, what a totally wretchless, you know, wretched person I am, your eyes are still obviously and apparently fixed on yourself. It's false humility when we're caught up in our weaknesses and our deficiencies. We're still fixed right here. As, we, as much as when we were in our grandiose ideas of ourselves. But true humility, on the other hand, looks away from self to heaven. True humility recognizes, I can't stand by myself. Instead it says, you're God and I'm not. You rule and reign over the times, over the seasons, over the years. You rule and reign over kings and kingdoms, governments. You rule over all that you have created, the climate, the viruses. You rule and reign over the economy. You do all that pleases you. You can change everything just like that. You're the potter, and I'm the clay. Your will, not my will, be done. Humility sees that apart from Christ, I can do nothing. But in Christ, I can accomplish whatever God has planned For me to do. So why why should God exalt somebody like Nebuchadnezzar, a, a wicked man, broken, brutal, narcissistic man? Why does God give grace to somebody like that? Why does God give grace to the humble? And why would we ever hope to receive God's favor? In closing, I'd like you just to think about this. Consider another king who was brought down from the highest heights to the deepest depths. This this is a king who could actually rightly look out over all creation and say, is this not that which I have made by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And yet, instead of exalting himself, this king voluntarily humbled himself. And even though he was, by very nature, he was God, this king humbled himself and became a man. A step step downward, well, at least as large as when Nebuchadnezzar went to live with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. But this king went even further than that. He took on the form of his servant. He healed the sick. He preached to the poor. He washed the feet of his disciples. And then he died a criminal's death on a cross, even though he'd never committed anything wrong. That humble king is Jesus. And his season... His seven times, if you will. His season of humiliation is over. And He is now, at this very moment, exalted in glory. And He has accomplished our redemption fully. And He is the one to whom our praise is now directed. And this is why we may exalted. <laughs> it's not because our humility is so deserving, you know? Oh man, we've just we've so adequately humbled ourselves that now, oh man, we're, we're, we're just worth ra- raising up, right? It's by faith in Him. It's because we fix our eyes on Him who was once humbled and is now glorified rather than looking at ourselves. We, and by faith, join to Him, our lives are counted perfect with Him. His perfect life is now ours. His sin-atoning death is ours. His resurrection life is now ours. And so our souls now can magnify Him for His grace that makes us fit to stand in His presence forever. And may this truth get things done in our lives, especially engendering a humble people that worship him rightly in Jesus' name. Let's let's pray together. Oh, that you would be exalted. Lord Jesus, rightly. And oh, that you would produce the kind of tender-heartedness and meekness and lowliness that doesn't shrink back with kind of a mamby-pamby way of being in a world like this, but a true humility that, that constantly turns to you in reliance upon you to do the next right thing. To make things right. To look out for the oppressed. To stand for righteousness. To be bold and courageous in proclaiming the truth about who God is. It takes enormous humility to do these things. The fear of man would overwhelm us. And so if we, unless we are able to turn away with such preoccupation about us and our own self-preservation and our own self-righteousness and our own self-pity and our own self-whatever, until we're able to turn our eyes and behold the glories of Christ in heaven on our behalf. We have no good thing. And so we ask again, Lord, that by your grace and for your glory, you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold you rightly, to see you rightly, spiritually awakened to all that you are for us, oh God, in Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. Let's stand together and worship him.